You ever thought about the origins of the, uh, the songs, the hymns that we sing, the ones that are dear to our hearts that we maybe have grown up singing in our entire lives? Consider one man's story this morning. Uh, sick and puny as a baby, he remained frail and, uh, and delicate his entire life. He would grow up to be a pastor, and his sicknesses were such that uh, he could no longer serve his growing congregation, and so he decided instead to write them letters filled with hope and, and encouragement. Even though his body was, was frail, his spirit soared. He often uh, would, would, would speak with his congregation with different pastor friends, and he once complained that uh, the, the, the hymns of his day were, were uh, harsh and uncouth. And so one of them challenged him, well, why don't you write your own, write a better one? And he did. And he went on to write another one and another one. And he wrote over 600 hymns, mostly hymns of praise in his lifetime. And when his health finally broke in 1748, he left one of the most remarkable collections of hymns the world has ever known. His name was Isaac Watts. And his contribution to the Christmas season is probably one of the most sung of all the Christmas hymns, of the Christmas carols that we love and hold dear. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. And the question, could Isaac Watts have written so profoundly if his life would have been easy? If it would have been not characterized by sickness and, and, uh, and years of, of discomfort? We're not sure the answer to that, but it is amazing to note that uh, often persons who have everything, as far as their health, finances, seems to have a, a prosperous life, end up being spiritual zeros, and those that are struggling through life with, with sicknesses and things like Isaac Watts, their souls have both depth and, and height, and they, they seem to have a, a fervency in their love for Christ, and that's precisely what we see this morning as we continue through our study of Acts, we come to the final of Paul's defense speeches. And in them we see that these speeches are, are God continuing to be faithful to his stated will for Paul's life. If you remember back to the, the barracks where Christ visited Paul and said, Paul, you're going to stand before those in Rome, the emperor himself, and testify of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we see that all through these, these speeches, these defense speeches, that God's doing that. God's continuing to be faithful to that stated will for Paul. And we see Paul continuing to be faithful to proclaim the gospel, the life-changing power, life power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So a bit of a reminder where we've been, if you haven't been with us or maybe missed a Sunday for traveling or something like that, Paul arrived in Jerusalem after this second missionary journey, and he goes and he stands before a crowd of accusers in chapter 22, a mob that's formed and come against him. After that, he goes and stands before the, the Jewish elite, the, uh, the religious leaders of his day in chapter 23, still in Jerusalem. And then he goes before the governor, the Roman governor Felix in Caesarea. They take him there. They transport him there under uh, heavy military guard in chapter 24, and he gives a defense before Felix. Well, this week he's going to briefly address Festus, who took Felix's place as governor, and then his final address is going to be before King Agrippa. And so we've put those two together in chapters 25 and 26. We're covering these two chapters this morning, so there's a lot of text. And so let me give you the roadmap where we're headed in our time together this morning. We're going to walk through uh, those two chapters, summarizing the events, what happened, the narrative, what's going on in the life of Paul and in our study of Acts. And then we're going to settle down in the last half of chapter 26 and observe this speech, Paul's final speech, this time before Agrippa. It's powerful. It's gospel-filled. 
you'll notice, even if you've read before, preparing for this Sunday morning, if you've read it already, Paul is hammering home the, the heart of the gospel in this speech. And I think there is in it some, uh, some application for us as we live as faithful witnesses of Christ in our day and in our culture and in the world around us. I think Paul gives us a helpful model for, for living out the gospel, speaking the gospel to those around us. Remember, Paul's general task, there's some differences, but his general task is not dissimilar to ours, right? The commission that Christ gave him to go and tell people the good news of salvation in Jesus and to call on them a decision to be made to trust upon Jesus Christ. Salvation doesn't stop with us. God did not save us and, and, and mean for that to be a, a cul-de-sac, that the, the gospel just dead ends with us. He meant for it to be a freeway, an interstate highway, that the gospel would go from us to others. It would be uh, moving from, we'd be a conduit for the gospel, that it would come to us, change our lives, and then we'd give it to others. The same was true for Paul. And, uh, and so in this, we, we see Paul modeling this for us this morning. We'll make some important applications at the end. But let's walk through the chapters. Uh, we'll follow the chapter divisions. If you want points, they're just chapter 25 and chapter 26. Paul's speech before Festus and then his final speech before Agrippa. So chapter 25, the first thing you'll note there, there's a new governor in town. His name is Festus. And he rejects the request from the Jewish leaders. If you'll note... Uh, <laughs> All right, we're not burning anything down. We're okay. I'm kind of worried when I heard it fall. Uh, Felix, this former governor, right, the one we met last week that's so corrupt, the evil uh, former slave, now governor of this this region of of Palestine, he was fired by Nero, and Festus came to replace him. And uh, and it seems, we don't know much about Festus from history, but it seems that he's more uh, lenient. He's more moderate than Felix was before him. Verse 25 says that uh, three days after he arrived there in the province, he went to, to work on this issue with Paul. Paul's been locked up for two years. It's been under house arrest for two years. And so he makes this courtesy visit to Jerusalem. He wants to hear the, the religious leaders there make their case. It's clear, though, that their feelings haven't changed about Paul in these two years. Verse, uh, verse 3, was uh, Paul, Paul was um, uh, this request that he be brought back to Jerusalem um, so that, you guessed it, they could ambush and kill him on the way. These guys are, are pretty predictable. Their plan has not changed. It still involves an ambush and Paul dying. Festus, however, he's not going to be their puppet, at least initially. You'll see him shift in the course of our text this morning. But at least right here, he wants to see things done the right way, done decently according uh, to, the, to the laws that he was to uphold. Well, after hearing these religious leaders, eight to ten days Festus returns to Caesarea to hear Paul and to hear his side of things, and that's verses 6 through 12. Note, though, in verse 7, Festus is not the only person that makes the trip from Jerusalem back up to Caesarea where Paul is. The Jews sent representatives to bring these charges before Paul. It says this time, though, they ramped up their accusations, verse 7, as they stood around him. So some physical intimidation. They, They gather in a ring around Paul as they're making these accusations as to what he's done. Paul simply denies the charges, and for the first time, he clearly states that he's done nothing to offend Caesar. Verse 7 also says that they couldn't prove anything, right? It says they couldn't prove anything, so case would, case would be closed, right? Well, not so fast. Festus could have closed the case, but he decides to play the politician. Verse 9, it says, But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, 
Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Paul wants none of that. Possibly because he knows about the ambush, the plot to kill him. I don't think that's it, though. I think more than that, he knows Jesus has already told him he's going to testify in Rome. And Jerusalem is not Rome, so I'm not going to Jerusalem. So what does Paul do? He insists that these charges against him are trumped up and false. And Festus already knows this to be the case. Verse 10. Paul also, though, in his, in his statement here, he says, I'm not afraid to die. I'm not, I'm not afraid to die on behalf of Christ, but this death sentence must come from Rome, not a bunch of corrupt, angry Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. And so in verse 11, he appeals to Caesar, let me stand before the emperor, the emperor himself, to decide my case. Let me go before Nero, who was the emperor, emperor at that time. Now, Festus, because of this, is in a jam. He's in a tight spot, right? If he sets Paul free... He's going to, uh, to offend all of these Jews that he's supposed to be governing and maintaining peace among. But if he prosecutes Paul, if he sentences Paul, then he's going to offend Roman law, which he's a governor meant to uphold. And so he's sort of in a tight spot. But in verse 12, he grants this appeal. We'll let the emperor decide your case. Now, I want to point out that a lot of this morning, especially in the first part, is going to be descriptive in nature. We're summarizing what's going on in Paul's life and in the book of Acts. But that doesn't mean that it's, that it's just simply history that we can glance over, that there's no application. It's important for us, and there's spiritual nourishment here. In making this appeal, think about the weight of this for Paul, right? We're reading something that happened a long time ago. It's easy for it just to bounce off of us and not feel the weight of it. But you think about what's going on here with Paul when he makes this appeal to travel to Rome, to stand before the emperor. That seems pretty obvious, like a shallow statement for us. But but there's a couple things here we need to note. First, Paul's understanding exactly what could happen here. Paul is saying he's boldly committed, committed to following God's will for his life, which he's already been told that he would go to Rome and testify in Rome, even if that meant his very probable death. He's, he's pledging his allegiance to his true king, Jesus, regardless of what comes his way. That's incredibly encouraging and convicting for me. I don't know about you, but that, that's, that commitment to God's will and plan. Second, though, through, through Paul's many dangers, tolls, and snares, God is working out his sovereign purposes. All of this is not by chance or accident. God is working through all of these circumstances, even in Paul's conviction to appeal to Caesar. Those are weighty words with eternal significance. So off to see the emperor, right? Well, again, not so fast. Festus realized the significance of these charges. He understood how big a deal it was for a governor to go and bring an appeal uh, before the emperor. And so as governor, he wanted to make sure he had his ducks in a row before going and standing before Nero, the most powerful man in the world at that time. So he enlists the help of King Agrippa. Now we need to hit pause here for a second. And understand who Agrippa is. Uh, he ruled over Palestine with the, uh, the status of a king. But don't get this twisted. He's allowed to serve as a king at the will of the emperor. He is not the emperor. He's the hired help, right? And so when he stands before Agrippa, he is standing before a powerful man. But it's not the emperor. Festus wants his assistance, wants Agrippa's assistance because he works for Rome he had a Jewish background. So he knows all of these uh, intramural squabbles, these, these conversations and, and arguments that are going on between the, the Jews and, and the Gentiles and even among the Jews and these, new, these Christians, this new group. But he works for the Romans. And so he's going to help, help uh, Festus to, to, to form an accusation to bring before the emperor. Well, in verse 13, we meet Agrippa and Bernice. 
I know it's hard to imagine an un, a more unsavory couple than Felix and Drusilla, who we met last week, but Agrippa and Bernice are that couple, more unsavory even than Felix and Drusilla. Uh, you see, Agrippa II was the latest in the Herod dynasty, and again, when you hear that name Herod, it should bring up some concern always. His great-grandfather was King Herod that feared the birth of Jesus. And if you remember, goes and murders all of the male children around Bethlehem when Jesus is, is born. His great-uncle murdered John the Baptist. His father was the Herod that executed James and threw Peter into prison. This is not a good pedigree. And then you add to that his sister, you heard me correctly, his sister Bernice. She was one year younger than Agrippa II. She was engaged to Marcus, who uh, was the nephew of the philosopher Philo. Maybe you've heard that name in history. And she didn't want to stay in a relationship with Marcus, and so she goes and marries her uncle, Herod, the king of Chalcis. But at this point in her life, here with Agrippa II, she's no longer with her uncle. She's now living incestuously with her full brother, Agrippa II. And this is the couple that we meet in verse 13. To make matters even more outrageous, Rome has considered that Agrippa II is an authority on religious matters, especially Jewish religious matters, because he's a Herod. He has Jewish background. And so they've appointed him the curator of the the Jewish temple. They've given him the uh, the power and authority to appoint the, the high priest, the Jewish high priest, to oversee the Jewish treasury. And so here's this Jewish expert who's living with his sister and who's going to speak to Paul's case and give Festus advice on how he should bring an appeal before the emperor, the most powerful man in the Roman world. Verses 14 through 21, we see Festus's report to Agrippa. Everything that's happened with Paul, Festus makes it clear that this dispute is about theology. At least that much is clear now. It's revolved, if you remember, uh, the, the, the argument has shifted some. At this point, it all revolves around Paul's interpretation of the Old Testament. And Festus understands that. This guy, Paul, claims that Jesus is the risen Messiah, the one the Jews have been waiting on. But don't miss this. When, 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 when Paul's uh, first trial happens among the mob there in Jerusalem, if you remember what it's about, it's about uh, Lysias, that, that tribune leader in, in Jerusalem. They believed he was desecrating the temple. They believed that he was some, some guy that had done something wrong with a Gentile in the temple and, and had desecrated the temple, and that's what their whole issue is. And now it's clearly shifted to being about the resurrection. Verse 19, it's clear that Jesus, this claim that Jesus, this Jewish Messiah, has died, and that dead man is now alive. So you see what's happened. The resurrection is in full view. Paul has made no mistake about it through time and time again, getting to tell the story, getting to give a defense. He's actually shared the gospel such that it's now lodged into being the actual complaint. Festus gives Agrippa the the, the summary version. This is about the resurrection. He's made it about the gospel. Agrippa and Festus agree in verse 22 that Paul's going to give a defense the next day before Agrippa. And that's exactly what happens Verses 23 through 27 set the scene for us the next day. 23 says that they came in with great pomp, meaning that they had such a short time. It was the next day, but even in that short time, they pulled off this grand event. And Luke, as the writer of Acts, tells us that prominent men and dignitaries, the elites in society, were gathered to hear Paul. Most of these would have been Gentile background folks. Everyone's gathered, and now Festus introduces Paul. Look at verse 24. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people 
petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving of death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I've brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Now, before we get into Paul's speech, think about something here. Jesus is not caught off guard or or caught by surprise with what's going on in Paul's life. In fact, he predicted it. If you think back to Luke chapter 21, Luke's gospel, uh, the disciples, Jesus says the disciples, he, he predicts, he tells them, you'll be brought before kings and you'll be brought before governors. But he assures them that as they stand trial before kings and governors, they would be given in that moment words of wisdom to speak. And in the next few paragraphs, we see that God is faithful to that promise. Festus and Agrippa had zero ability or power to decide anything in Paul's case. Remember, because he's already appealed to Caesar. They have no authority to to condemn him to death or to release him and let him go free. They're simply hearing his case so that Festus can bring the charges. They have no authority or no power here. So from their perspective, from a human perspective, they're simply gathering this, this crowd to put on a show and to gather some information. But in reality, God has gathered this crowd This is all part of God's sovereign plan in accomplishing his will in Paul's life, keeping his word that you will stand before governors and kings and you'll speak and you'll give a defense. And in that moment, it's not you, Paul, that's speaking. It's the Holy Spirit. As you share the gospel, as you proclaim the goodness of salvation in Jesus. And so we can trust, church family, just a bit of application here. When you are given that opportunity, when you stand before folks and and proclaim the good news of Jesus, maybe even family members or neighbors or or folks at work, and and, and your heart's racing and you're not sure that you're going to say the right things and you're afraid that you're not going to have the right answers to say if they ask hard questions, you can trust, you can rely on the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you to give you words in that moment to testify and, and share the good news of Jesus. He promises as much. He's with us in those circumstances. Here's the thing, too. For the Uganda team, in just a few short days, you're going to stand before villages of people in in Africa, in Uganda, and you're going to have an opportunity to stand before them and through a translator, share the good news of Jesus. And I know for for those of you that are in the room that you're going to Uganda, your heart just started racing because you're thinking about standing before a village of people and sharing the good news of Jesus. And that makes you a little bit nervous and, and, and uncomfortable. Maybe makes your heart beat fast. Maybe, maybe gives you a little bit of anxiety. Here's what you can trust in that moment. Just like Paul before Agrippa, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. And in that moment, he'll give you words to testify of the goodness of salvation in Christ. You can trust that promise. He's faithful. And that leads to our second point in the, the, the sermon this morning, our second chapter this morning in our outline. And that's Paul's speech before Agrippa. You'll notice the various parts of the speech here. We're going to walk through them, again, summarizing as quickly as possible. We recognize Paul's uh, purpose, though. He's not pouting. He's not complaining. He's not trying to negotiate a deal from this regional king. He's preaching the gospel. Make no mistake about it. Though there are others in the room, primarily Gentiles in the room, Gentile elites, Paul is reasoning with Agrippa. He's using the little bit of understanding that Agrippa has about the Jewish faith to persuade Agrippa to bow his knee before King Jesus. And so in doing that, you'll notice that Paul magnifies the cross and the resurrection. It's going to come up multiple times in Paul's speech here. He's driving home the heart of the gospel. Let's note the the various parts of Paul's speech first. 
Paul's greeting and, and generous remarks to Agrippa. You see it in verses 1 through 3. Paul begins his defense of the gospel, stretching out his hand in verse 1. And this is not uh, him telling the, the crowd, hey, be quiet, I got something to say. This is him doing a, a, a sign of courtesy or a sign of respect to Agrippa. Thanks for the opportunity to speak. He notes even the, the king's familiarity with Jewish customs. He's, he's showing respect to this Jewish king. Second, second part of his, his speech here is his explanation of his Jewish background. You'll note in verses 4 through 5, uh, Paul describes his strict Jewish heritage, that he was a trained Pharisee. He was one of the most trained Jews of, of his day as a rabbi and a teacher. And then in verse 6 and 7, we see a major theme in his defense, that his current faith in Jesus as the Messiah is not a violation of his Jewish heritage. His current faith is actually a fulfillment of his Jewish heritage. In other words, Paul is saying, I never left the Jewish faith. I just see Jesus as the fulfillment of everything the, the Jews believe because of the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus is the one prophesied about. He's the one that we've been waiting on. And then this powerful question in verse 8. It's really more of a statement than a question. Verse 8, though, he says, why is the thought, why is it the thought, why is the thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? And this is really, it's what it all boils down to. This is what Paul is, is, is bringing all of this down to. Jews that are in the room, Agrippa, you have some Jewish background. Jews have been waiting for Messiah. Everyone agrees to that. The, the Old Testament prophets talked of that. And, and, and they just don't bow their knee to Jesus because they don't believe that he's the one who's conquered death. They believe he's still dead somewhere. Gentiles will not bow the knee to Jesus for the same reason. Even though they've not been waiting on a Messiah like the Jews, they find it incredible. They find it unbelievable that Jesus has risen from the dead. And so religious background or no religious background, it all boils down to the resurrection. Do you believe that Jesus died on behalf of sinners and rose again? Let me offer this to you this morning as well. In 2,000 years, nothing has changed. It boils down to the resurrection. Do you believe Jesus to be the Son of God who died in your place, who bore your sin on the cross and was raised to conquer death or not? That, that, that is, that is the, the crux of, of everything. And so whether you're sharing the gospel with a, a person in food line next week and you call them to believe upon Christ, it all boils down. Do they believe that Jesus died in their place and is now alive? In Africa, in a few weeks, in a few days, if you proclaim the gospel to a group of people there, it all boils down to this question that Paul raises. Why is it that you think it's incredible, unbelievable, that, that Jesus would be dead, that he's not been raised? Because the truth of the gospel hinges upon, if Christ is still in the grave, we're believing for no reason. We're the fools. But if he's been raised, it's the difference. It's what matters, that Christ has conquered death. He's defeated our greatest enemy, sin and hell. Third, third part of Paul's speech. He shows that he had a hatred for Christianity himself. This is verses 9 through 11. Paul puts himself in their shoes, right? He identifies with them by saying that he too once found the truth of the resurrection as unbelievable, right? He's saying, I was where you were, but even further than that, I thought it was so dumb that people were believing that Christ had been raised from the dead that I actually committed my life to imprisoning, locking up people that would claim that, or worse, killing them. Because it was so unbelievable to me. So he's identifying with them in their, their misunderstanding of the gospel, their, their hatred of Christianity. Fourth, we see Paul, uh, fourth part of Paul's speech, he, he centers on his conversion and his commission. That when Paul, the terrorist, 
Having been commissioned by the chief priest to continue this persecution of Christians, Paul the terrorist became Paul the evangelist when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Paul makes it clear. This was not a dream. This was not a hallucination. It was a public event. Verse 14, if you look at verse 14, Paul says, We fell down. Meaning, there are people that were with me headed to round up Christians, and they too fell down because of this light that was brighter than the sun. If you don't believe me, go and ask them. They saw it too. It wasn't a private event that happened in a corner somewhere. Jesus showed up. He encountered the risen Christ, and then Christ commissioned him, gave him a mission. In verses 16 through 18, show us that commission to proclaim the comprehensive benefits of the gospel to a comprehensive audience, meaning Jews and Gentiles, everyone, needs to hear about the comprehensive benefits of the gospel. Well, what are those? What are the benefits of the gospel? He gets into that. If you continue in verse 18, look at it with me. I'll give you, uh, I'll give you three of them that, that we see in the four of them that we see in the text. First, the gospel sets people free from spiritual confusion and ignorance. Look at verse 18. Paul uses phrases like, open their eyes, turning from darkness to light. What he's saying there is that the, the benefit of the gospel is believing upon Christ means that you are freed from, set free from spiritual confusion and ignorance. Second benefit of the gospel Second, people are set free from the oppressive tyranny over their souls, right? Verse 18, by placing their faith in Christ, they go from the power of Satan to the power of God. This shows us that we're either serving one of two masters. Either Satan is our master or God is. There's no third option. You don't get a third, like, well, sometimes I'm here and sometimes... No, you either serve Satan or you serve your master who is God. And that's not popular in our culture today, to tell someone they're a servant of Satan might get you looked at kind of strange, but the Bible leaves us no other option. It's true. Third, the gospel frees people from guilt, condemnation, and eternal punishment. Again, verse 18, when they receive forgiveness of sins. Receiving forgiveness of sins. And then fourth, fourth benefit of the gospel that Paul hits here in one verse. The gospel provides orphans, those who were strangers, aliens, orphans, with an eternal inheritance. You see it in verse 18 when Jesus says that that we may receive a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. So Paul is preaching to Agrippa here that Christ alone is the source of gospel blessings. Those blessings are freedom from ignorance, freedom from Satan, freedom from guilt, freedom from sin, and an everlasting inheritance in heaven with him. And we only receive those blessings of the gospel when we put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who's been risen from the dead. That's a lot of gospel in a little bit of text. That's what Paul's doing. He's laying it before Agrippa. He's giving him the gospel. Fifth, fifth part of Paul's speech here. Paul's faithfulness to do what Jesus commanded him. Look at verse 19, and you'll see how Paul explains that he carried out this commission, this command from Jesus. Verse 20, he preached in Damascus and Jerusalem and Judea and to all the Gentiles. Then verse 22 through 23, Paul gives glory to God. Not only did he do this, but verse 22 and 23, he gives glory to God for that obedience, pointing out that God provides the power to obey, He provides the message to proclaim. And so even his obedience to the commission is God. Which if you've not been listening, that message that he's proclaiming, he repeats for you. That Jesus suffered and died and rose again. I don't think Paul wants Agrippa to miss that. And I think we rush past it so often. That this this core truth of the gospel, the heart of the gospel, salvation in Jesus Christ is that he died in the place of sinners and he rose again. 
Let us never, ever grow weary or tired or let that be commonplace to us. There's no other way of salvation, friends. Sixth, sixth part of Paul's speech here is an evangelistic appeal to Agrippa. In that moment, though, as, as, as Paul's proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming this commission from Jesus, the risen Messiah, the one that the Jews have been waiting on, Festus is sitting there and he just can't contain himself anymore. And in verse 24, Festus says, Paul, you're out of your mind. This is what our sister Tammy read for us this morning. Paul, you're out of your mind. Your learning is driving you out of your mind. You're crazy, Paul. You believe in resurrection? That's a crazy idea. It was crazy to the Romans. And Festus's outbreak here, the fact that he can't even contain himself anymore, is a reminder to us that it is foolishness even today for those that are perishing. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. So here's the truth, friends. When you proclaim the resurrection, be ready to get some strange looks. People don't come back from the dead. Jesus did. Paul proclaims that Festus thinks he's crazy. Nonetheless, Paul defends himself respectfully, candidly. In verse 25, he says, no, these are true and rational words. Then he brings the attention back to Agrippa in verse 26. He assumes Agrippa is familiar with these events, right? He's been around. He's been in the Roman Empire. He has Jewish background, and so these are not new things to him. They didn't happen in secret in a corner, Paul says. And so he's assuming, Agrippa, you're familiar with this. And then he places it squarely on Agrippa. Haven't you heard about this? You've heard about this, right, Agrippa? But Agrippa, he dodges the question. You notice that's, that's what happens. He can't say that he denies the prophets, right? He can't deny the prophets have proclaimed that this would happen, the prediction of a Messiah, because then he offends all of these Jews that he's supposed to be governing. But he can't say yes and have Paul continue to press him to see the realities, the claims of the, the Jesus being that Messiah. And so at this point, Paul, still growing bolder still, makes a direct, or direct evangelistic appeal. He wanted everyone there to believe the good news of Jesus, no matter how long it took. Short or long, Paul says, he wanted them to experience what he had experienced in Christ. And church family, this is our joy in in evangelism. It's not that we would want to just fill up this room with people. It's not that we would do it for to, to, to look good or, or even have consequences in our, in our culture that would come from it. More people become born, born again, our community, our state, our world begins to look more like how Christ had uh, planned it and, and, and should be. That's not the reason. That's not the motivation. That's not the, 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 the thing that propels our evangelism. The joy in us sharing the gospel is that we want people to experience what we've experienced. We want people to know the freedom that comes from Christ, the benefits of the gospel that we just described. We want them to understand those too because we've experienced them. But then we have Agrippa's response. Verse 28. Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? In such a short time, would you convince me, Paul, to be a Christian? Paul said, whether long or short, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. The irony in this particular scene and in this statement from Paul is that the people listening that are hearing him are the ones that are actually in chains, spiritual bondage. While Paul, on the other hand, is soaring with joyful praise even while he's physically chained. And he wants them to understand and and to experience that freedom and that joy themselves. Verse 30, Agrippa rises to his feet. The speech is over. And Agrippa and Bernice and the other prominent people met together and privately affirmed Paul's innocence. This man's done nothing wrong. He's not deserving of death. 
Agrippa concludes, verse 32, that Paul could indeed go free. He would, he would have, he would have uh, vindicated him and allowed him to go free if he had not appealed to Caesar. But nothing can come between you and that appeal. Once you've appealed to the emperor, the emperor will decide your case. And so it's time to honor Caesar by asking him to render a decision in Paul's case. Paul faithfully delivered the gospel. Agrippa tragically rejected the gospel. Would you in such a short time convince me to be a Christian? What a tragic answer to the truth of the gospel. And it's time for Paul to continue testifying of the gospel of grace, now this time in Rome. Now this time where Jesus said he would. Now, I want to spend the rest of the time this morning that we have, the few moments that we have left, to unpack some application from this. That's what happens in 25 and 26. This is the the narrative that we've walked through, the story of what's going on with Paul before Festus and then before Agrippa. What do we learn from this? How do we apply a text like this to our lives? How do we make application that you can go and live out faithfully tomorrow, wherever the Lord takes you tomorrow? Different commentaries observe different lists or different applications from this list of five or six things you can see in Paul's speech. I want to give you nine, nine real quickly, and that, I am, uh, that I'm coming from Tony Morita's commentary on Acts, so give him credit for these nine if they're helpful for you. Number one, address unbelievers respectfully. This is verses one through three. Chapter 26, verses one through three. Paul's generous, courteous comment to Agrippa is a model for us. It's a challenge for us. We don't back away from truth, but we do it with, with respect and courtesy. This is reminding us of Peter's words, right? First Peter chapter three. First Peter chapter three, verses fifteen and sixteen. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that if you're slandered or when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. What we say, hear me, hear me carefully here. What we say is more important than how we say it. But how we say it is not unimportant. It is important. Our delivery methods, our tone, the respect we have for the people that we're sharing with, it matters not only to our hearers, it matters to God matters to God. And so what we say is important, but let's do it with care. Let's, uh, let's blend truthfulness with tenderness. Let's blend courage with compassion. Let's not back up from proclaiming the good news of Jesus, but let's do it in a way that it honors. It's a respectful thing to those we're proclaiming it to. Second application here, express what it was like to not believe. This is verses 4 through 11. The model that we have from Paul. Paul's recounting his former way of life before his conversion. And it illustrates this approach. Sometimes it's helpful for people to understand that we didn't always understand the gospel. We too were were not believers. We had different perspectives. We had different practices prior to, to understanding and believing upon Christ. Sympathizing with our audience in this way may gain a better hearing. I need to be clear. Our personal testimonies are not the gospel. Right? So if we just go and share our story with someone, we can do that with a good heart and they can maybe learn something and get warm fuzzies from it. And we can share our stories without ever mentioning the gospel. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about we proclaim the truth of the gospel and we bring our listeners in. We, we find these connections with them. As Paul said, I was one persecuting Christians. And we relate to them and be ready to lovingly explain our former assumptions, our former way of thinking, our former misconceptions and even sins, which the Lord delivered you from. Number three, aim to exalt Jesus and not self. 
Here's the thing. Paul's Damascus story that we've now read three times in the book of Acts, Paul's Damascus Road story is ultimately a story about Jesus and not Paul, right? I think so often, even in the way we talk about Paul and the Damascus Road, right? But this is a story about Jesus, and, and Paul's presenting it in that way. The apostle, apostle makes sure to keep Jesus at the, as the hero of his testimony. And this is a reminder to us that as we, as we have opportunities to talk about the gospel, Jesus is always the clear hero, hero of our stories, too. Just this week, uh, I noticed someone in our church family uh, serving us as a church family in a very behind-the-scenes sort of way. They weren't doing it for credit. If I hadn't saw them do it, I would have never known that they were even doing it. And so I just sent them a text message. It was a simple text. And I said, hey, thanks for serving the Lord and our church family so faithfully. And they replied, this was their reply. It's not me. I'm genuinely out of my comfort zone. If it were not God, I would not be doing it. That's the sort of thing I'm talking about here. That, 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 that we, in every part of our story, whether it's our conversion or it's testimony of what God's doing in our life now, it's a, we're a mirror reflecting the goodness of God. We, we're not the ones doing it. He's the hero of our story. Even in the way that we serve one another, he's the one that's giving us grace by his spirit to do those things. We reflect glory and attention to Jesus. Number four, fourth application here. Share the benefits of the gospel with all types of people. This is verses 16 through 18. Paul keeps on speaking about the the Lord's grace to open eyes, to transfer people from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, uh, to transfer them from the power of of Satan to the power of God, to give them a new master, to grant them an an eternal inheritance. And as he does this, he does this with anyone he comes into contact with, Jew or Gentile, uh, Jewish elite, religious leader, or or, or anybody that he meets, a, a slave girl or someone who's in prison. In this case, even a a regional king. I think that this gives us an example to follow as well as conviction. We speak, whether it's a big group, a a small group, a one-on-one conversation with people from all sorts and walks of life, rich, poor, those like us, those unlike us. There's a need for the gospel. The benefits of the gospel are amazing, and we've been called to take it to anyone that will listen. Number five. Stick to the message of the resurrection and call people to repentance. Stick to the message of the resurrection and call people to repentance. If you ever have any doubt, right? If you're ever in that moment, the Lord convicts you, your heart starts racing, you know you're supposed to share the gospel with this person, you're standing before a group of people, the Lord gives you opportunity. What am I to say in that moment? Head for the cross. You're not going to get it wrong heading for the cross. Head to the cross and the resurrection and then call for a decision for them to repent. The first chapter of Acts all the way to the very end of Acts, Luke has continued to emphasize the Messiah who suffered, died, and rose from the dead. So much so that it's occurred in in, in every passage, every speech that we've seen, over and over again, the apostles call on people, Jew and Gentile, to repent and believe. And until we see Jesus face to face, let's never get tired of taking people to the heart of the gospel. Number six, rely on help that comes from God. This is verse 22. Paul's comment in verse 22 reminds us of our help that comes from the Lord. We're faithful to proclaim his word. When we live as witnesses unto Jesus Christ, we can't forget that even our ability to to be obedient in that comes from power and grace that he gives us. Number seven, call for a response. Call for a response to the gospel. This is verses 24 through 28. The gospel demands a response. And we should be ready to pose some probing questions when we're talking with our unbelieving neighbors, folks in our workplace. We must give them clear opportunities to accept or reject Christ. Paul did so, 
with Agrippa. It sets a model and a precedent for us to follow. Be respectful, but not cowardly. Give opportunities to say yes to Jesus. Number eight, be ready for rejection and even ridicule. Festus calls Paul insane. He says, you're out of your mind, man. All this education you've had, all this learning you've had, it's caused you to lose your mind. You're an insane person. When you share the gospel with people and people hear you proclaiming that you're following a guy who lived 2,000 years ago in the Middle East and he died and he rose again, that's an outlandish claim. It's true, but for the unbelieving person, that is crazy talk. Be ready for ridicule and even rejection. We call them to respond to, to Jesus. We demonstrate the need that we have for Christ, but only God converts the heart. Number nine, last one. Pray for the people that you're sharing the gospel with. This is verse 29. Paul says, I wish before God. What is a wish before God? Pray. Pray. I pray that you would understand and believe, Agrippa. I pray that everyone listening here today would understand and believe, Agrippa. This reminds us of the type of heart that we should have as we share the good news. If you're not praying for the people you're sharing with, whose power are you trusting to change their hearts? Your, your way to win an argument, your convincing dialogue, your, your understanding of apologetics and ability to defend the, the Bible. No, we trust God alone to change hearts. Paul was prayerful. God, you do this work. Would that God would open your eyes and help you to see your sinfulness. We should have the same type of compassion toward our hearers. That we pray. When we wake up in the morning, God, give me opportunity. Help me to be faithful. Give me the words to say in that moment. And then when we, by God's grace, get opportunities to do that, and we're obedient, we pray on the back end, God, I don't, I don't know where their heart's at. It seemed like they rejected it. It seemed like they even ridiculed me in that moment, maybe. God, would you convince them of the truth of the gospel? That we would have broken hearts, faces that are wet with tears for the, the conversion of the folks that we're near and around every day. May God grant us to, to, to respond in our world like Paul is in his. Under every circumstance, regardless of the outcome, we would be bold proclaimers of good news. Let's pray together.